Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. G'day everyone and welcome to JOSPT Insights for 2024. As we prepare for a big year of JOSPT Insights interviews, we're easing you into 2024 by recapping a few of our most loved and most listened to episodes from 2023. These are wonderful chats with some of the leading clinician scientists in the musculoskeletal rehabilitation field. They're the episodes you don't want to miss, which is why we really wanted to replay them for you now. It is such a thrill to hear how much you all love the JOSPT Insights podcast. Thank you for all of the support. We really love making the podcast and sharing with you the thoughts of all the fantastic guests who join us on JOSPT Insights. Thanks to them. And of course, a very big thanks to all of you. Okay, here's today's episode. Today, we're sorting out subacromial pain, or at least diagnosing it. Dr. Angela Cadogan is a specialist sports physiotherapist, and she's here to help us hone our clinical reasoning in diagnosing subacromial pain. Is it a stiff shoulder, a rotator cuff issue? Is it the acromioclavicular joint? Or is it something else altogether? On JOSPT Insights today, Dr. Cadogan brings her experience in the orthopaedic shoulder service in New Zealand, where she manages shoulder triage and the non-surgical assessment service. She shares her practical approach to diagnosing subacromial pain in a way that you can take straight to the clinic tomorrow. Angela Cadogan, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thanks very much for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining me, Angela, and for joining the listeners in a chat today about shoulder pain and diagnosing, making sense of what's going on in the shoulder when someone comes in with, I think that often quite typical and yet sometimes quite challenging presentation of, and I'm sure our listeners can recognize this, someone walks into the clinic and says, Angela, Claire, I've got quite a lot of pain in my shoulder. It's hurting me if I try to do up my bra or I can't lift my arm very well above my head. Where do you start with that, Angela? How do you make sense of that information and then funnel that information into a clear diagnosis if we talk about that catch-all of subacromial pain? Yeah, that's a really great question, Claire. And I think the shoulder has been one of the more challenging areas in that regard to be able to make a differential diagnosis, mainly because our clinical tests lack accuracy for any any specific pathologies. So my approach to the diagnosis of shoulder pain is really a stepwise approach based on excluding some conditions up front first and then narrowing down a little bit more into the the diagnostic or the differential diagnostic detail after I've worked through a process of exclusion of, of other things. So in the context of subacromial pain, I'd be looking initially to exclude, as we always do, any red flag indicators of serious pathology, any cervical spine or other referred sources of pain. Then I'd be starting to look at are there any specific pathoanatomic conditions that maybe would need different management to physiotherapy? So the ones we need to refer on, in other words, for maybe early orthopedic review, 
Then I say, well, if we've excluded all of those things, then we have a batch of symptoms and signs that we can treat on a a symptom-based or an impairment-based approach. And then I'm also looking out for signs of any abnormal pain presentations or other pain classifications, neuropathic pain, nociplastic pain, et cetera. I'm referring to the diagnostic process. So I think when a lot of physios think about diagnosis, they think it really is just a pathoanatomic label for a condition. But when I'm talking about diagnosis, it's in the much broader context. So we're really using it to identify the nature and the cause of the patient's symptoms and signs so that we can actually upfront, just get them on the the right management pathway, whether it's surgical or non-surgical in the first instance, and then narrow down the differential from there as to if it's non-surgical management, exactly what type of non-surgical management. Is it physiotherapy combined maybe with injections or other interventions? So I think diagnosis really for me is a process and an important part of that process is being able to exclude various other conditions so that we can get to the point where we're confident we're dealing with a condition that belongs in a physiotherapy clinic. Angela, I really like how you define this as a process rather than a label. So let's get into some of the specifics of how that actually works for you in the clinic. How how do you approach that process of diagnosing what's going on with someone who's who's just walked in and said, my shoulder hurts? The first thing we always do with patient is take a history. And obviously I'm I'm assuming we've excluded red flags, serious pathologies, referred sources of pain. One of the next things that I'm more interested in with this patient is whether there's been a history of trauma with that shoulder. If they tell me there's been a traumatic mechanism of injury, I'm obviously more interested in some of the more traumatic rotator cuff related conditions in the context of this subacromial conversation. And some of the traumatic causes of rotator cuff pain, there may be a greater tuberosity fracture, there may be a traumatic rotator cuff tear of varying sizes. So those are probably the two most common causes of rotator cuff pain related to trauma. And there's many atraumatic causes as well. So a history of trauma gives me my first clue as to the fact we may be dealing with something that's a little bit more on the traumatic side of, of things. If we're looking at rotator cuff pain, some of the other clues from the history will be the patient will often describe pain in the region of the anterior or lateral shoulder. As we mentioned, just about every patient describes pain lifting their arm above their head. So that's a fairly common one. When I start looking at my physical examination tests, we do know that one of the strongest predictors actually of subacromial pain is the passive loss of external rotation. So if they have a passive loss of external rotation, we know that they're much less likely to have subacromial pain. And that stands to reason because a stiff shoulder, obviously loss of passive range, often signals a more stiff shoulder condition such as a frozen shoulder or arthritis or there's other causes for stiffness. So for subacromial pain, excluding a stiff shoulder is one of the most important physical examination tests that we can do. Other indicators of rotator cuff pain from the physical examination would be results of your resisted muscle tests. And we know that we can't isolate the rotator cuff components necessarily, but certainly with your resisted abduction and external rotation and your subscapularis tests, based on provocation of pain, 
detection of weakness and the degree of weakness. And certainly the degree of weakness for me is one of the biggest clinical indicators that there may be a loss of integrity of the rotator cuff. And when you match that up with the history of trauma or not, then you can start to get an idea of maybe there's a traumatic rotator cuff injury that may be significant depending on the degree of weakness, or if there's no history of trauma, it may still be a, a loss of integrity, but it may be an atraumatic origin, which would be in some cases managed differently. Obviously, if you're suspicious of a large or significant traumatic rotator cuff tear, you'd be ordering imaging to try and confirm or deny. And based on what you find, you may refer for orthopedic review and possibly early surgical referral. But certainly I think where we know, and there's plenty of evidence now for this, when we're dealing with the much smaller, isolated, atraumatic supraspinatus tears, we know that physio first really is the best treatment approach for those types of tears. Key clinical features that I'd look for is the history of trauma, the exclusion of a stiff shoulder condition, and then looking for any significant weakness in the rotator cuff as an indicator possibly of a significant tear that may need orthopedic review. I guess for me, the other condition that would be managed differently, so from a diagnostic point of view, is important to be able to identify would be a resorptive episode of calcific tendinopathy. And that's a, it's an interesting, quite a fascinating condition, really. We don't know what causes the calcium in the, the tendons, but in some cases, the, the calcium can enter a resorptive phase. And that is signaled by rapid onset of very, very severe pain in the shoulder. So over a 24, 48-hour period, the patient will go from having a pain-free shoulder to, in many cases, presenting to the emergency department in severe amounts of pain. So that's a fairly characteristic presentation for resorptive calcific tendinopathy Those patients do need immediate access to pain relief. They won't tolerate prolonged periods of trials of physiotherapy for weeks on end. They really do need early referral for significant pain relief. So that could be medications or in many cases, it's managed with an injection and fenestration or barbitage of the calcium, which is an interventional procedure. So that would probably be the other condition for me, aside from the traumatic fractures and tissue ruptures that really would be managed differently. So with that sort of presentation, imaging to confirm the presence of calcium and then referral for pain management on that basis. I like all of those wonderful clinical pearls, Angela. I want to come back to the the way that you are excluding, is this a frozen shoulder or not with the passive external range of motion test? How much difference in passive range side to side do you need to see to think, okay, this is something that I should pay attention to? When I was doing my research into this for the subacromial pain, we found that if they had a loss of more than 30 degrees of external rotation compared with their other side, that that was indicative of something other than subacromial pain. So in other words, it's less likely to be subacromial pain. But in the research world, you have to choose cut points. And I would have to say that that's not always going to apply in the clinical setting. So what I would say, I guess the, the, the biggest differential diagnosis between, I guess, a stiff shoulder and a rotator cuff problem, the most common thing would probably be a frozen shoulder, where you will see some loss of external rotation. That's the most consistent finding. It may vary in individuals. 
you know, from a slight loss, depending on where they are in their evolution cycle of their frozen shoulder to a more significant loss. But generally, you will also have loss of other passive range of motion tests with an evolving frozen shoulder. So if you've got a loss of external rotation compared with the opposite side, combined with a loss of other passive range of motion in elevation, internal rotation, it's more likely that you're dealing with a frozen shoulder or a stiff shoulder condition. So there's no real single clinical cut point. But from a research point of view, we found that a 30 degree loss was the the most accurate cut point identifier of subacromial pain or not. So it's a good rule of thumb, I guess, a good starting point. And then it's about putting together the pieces of this clinical puzzle and using your clinical reasoning skills to upgrade or downgrade the, the weighting of information. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's the thing with, with, you know, with anything in the shoulder is that we don't have a single clinical test that will tell us that this is subacromial pain or an AC joint pain or anything else. If we do think it's important that we need to either exclude or confirm a condition that would need onward referral, then we will need to use imaging in most cases because our clinical tests just aren't good enough at doing that. That's a perfect segue. You've set me up beautifully for my next question, Angela. What proportion of patients are you seeing who you would then refer on for imaging? How frequently How frequently are you working with our imaging colleagues? Because it's always that challenge of, do I need the imaging? Am I creating a, a, a situation where the patient's really going to get concerned about this when they see the imaging? If we image the other shoulder, am I going to find essentially the same picture? So it's, it's, imaging is complex. And how do you work through that that clinical reasoning around imaging, when to refer on or when not to? In the setting that I work in at the moment, I work as a specialist clinical consultant, really. So most people, by the time they see me, have already had imaging. In the primary contact or primary care setting or earlier in their journey, the indications for imaging, we shouldn't be afraid to use imaging because of how the patient might interpret those results. I think we need to use imaging if it's going to change what we do with that patient. And generally for me, the the indicators to get imaging would be to identify those traumatic conditions. So if there's been a clear history of significant trauma and I'm concerned about some sort of tissue rupture, fracture, then definitely that trauma is an indicator. If the patient has severe pain, um, and we're not just talking sort of eight or nine, as I mentioned, that calcific or the resorptive calcific tendinopathy presentation, if they are reporting insidious onset of severe pain in the shoulder, that is a red flag. And it could be calcific tendinopathy. It could also be infection. So that's something that we do need to refer and investigate early. If the patient has significant weakness, and you have to judge that, you know, is it pain inhibition or if you really feel there is significant weakness, then that's another indicator for me to look at the integrity of that rotator cuff. There may be a neurologic cause for that as well, but certainly weighing it up with other information, significant weakness is another indicator. And any patient who's not improving. So again, I see most patients I see have had pain for more than a year. So if they've had a lot of treatment, natural history for many of those conditions has had time to take its course, they are still reporting significant symptoms, that is also an indication for imaging because there it's more important that we're really making sure nothing is being missed and that we can get some diagnostic clarity, if only to exclude various things that may need different types of management. 
I guess sometimes with the shoulder and particularly the rotator cuff, you may need to get imaging to exclude certain conditions or, or pathologies that you would consider referring if found. As you mentioned, the difficulty is that might identify a number of pathologies that may be asymptomatic. And that is where we never use imaging as a standalone test. So it's always to answer a clinical question. So if you're referring for imaging, something is found on imaging, say they find a, I don't know, three millimeter partial thickness supraspinatus tear, and you're assessing them and they've got a gross sort of loss of passive range of motion it's not likely that that three millimeter tear is, is related to their loss of passive range. It's not the imaging that's the problem, it's how we're interpreting it and then how we translate that for the patient. If it's indicated, we should use it. I don't think we should shy away from that if it's going to ultimately benefit the patient and get them on a better or more appropriate treatment pathway. But we do need to be very careful that we have the ability to correlate those those findings clinically, and then also take appropriate action on what we find as well. Now, let's talk about clinical tests, Angela. <laughs> There's lots favorite of topic, <laughs> favorite topic. There's lots of discussion and debate and arguments, I think I would venture to say, about clinical tests and their value or absence of value. Where do you stand on clinical tests? What would you recommend the folks listening to us today think about when they're deciding? Empty can, full can, all of the Nears, Hawkins, Kennedy, all of these quote unquote special tests and, and other physical examination tests that you might do. In summary, because I could talk for a long time about this, <laughs> as I said, we cannot make any diagnosis of any shoulder condition on the basis of any single test. So the or if we're if we're talking clinical tests and equating those with our orthopedic tests or our special tests, there is no magic bullet. And if I look at how I use those tests, I almost, I would call them kind of my second or even third tier tests for the shoulder. When I'm making a differential diagnosis, so someone comes in with a shoulder problem, first question is, is it a stiff shoulder condition? And the way I know if it's stiff shoulder is by using my passive range of motion tests. So there are no special tests for a stiff shoulder. Then I look and say, okay, it's not stiff. They've got full passive range of motion. If I'm looking at my rotator cuff tests, again, there's no single test that will tell you that there is pain associated with a rotator cuff condition. And we've talked about some of those other indicators. If we're looking though at, do we think that there may be the possibility of a significant rotator cuff tear or rupture? There are a group of special tests, so our lag signs, so that would be our external rotation lag sign, internal rotation lag sign, drop arm test. So they are tests for integrity of the rotator cuff, and those tests can be useful. They have high specificity but poor sensitivity. So if they're positive, they can indicate there may be a significant tear of the rotator cuff. Those are the few special tests that I probably do use regularly in my diagnostic practice. Resistor tests, so pain and weakness, variable weakness with those rotator cuff tests would also be another indicator. But again, that's not a special test. That's just a good old fashioned resisted muscle test that will give me a lot of information. When it comes to the AC joint, which is another slightly less common, but still well-known cause of shoulder pain, my diagnosis there relies heavily on having excluded a stiff shoulder and a rotator cuff problem first. 
So it becomes a diagnosis of exclusion of other things rather than relying on one single special test. So for the AC joint, I've excluded a stiff shoulder. I don't have any significant pain or weakness with the resisted rotator cuff tests. When it comes to the AC joint, palpation tenderness can be a good indicator, but you have to compare it bilaterally because often it can be a, a tender palpation spot anyway. Again, my range of motion tests I find quite useful for the AC joint before we even get to any special tests. So if we're looking at end range pain in positions that we know put a lot of stress on the AC joint, which we know is compression and cross-body adduction, hand behind back or that fully internally rotated position, full elevation where you get maximum rotation of the clavicle. So end range pain with those movements for me for an AC joint is more diagnostic than any special test will be. There are clusters of special tests that when you put them together can indicate AC joint pain, but in isolation, they're not that useful. And for unstable shoulders, one of the other more useful special tests in terms of being specific and useful when it's positive is the anterior apprehension relocation test for intra-articular pathology or a structural instability lesion. So my tier one tests are my passive range of motion, my active range of motion with pain response and my resisted tests. And they will give you much more diagnostic information than any of your special tests or orthopedic tests will do. So those are the ones I always start with. I'll come to my special tests if I'm still looking for a large rotator cuff tear or an indicator of potential instability pathology. The other ones, the empty can impingement test, the Hawkins test, the near test, they're useful pain provocation tests. In the case of the Hawkins-Kennedy, its diagnostic accuracy is actually higher for ruling out subacromial pain. So when it's negative, it's much more useful than when it's positive. So Occasionally, I'll use that. I think that's probably the trap that we've fallen into a little bit. I think, especially with a lot of the interventional studies on subacromial pain, a lot of them have used a positive Hawkins Kennedy test as the inclusion criteria for those studies, when in actual fact, it's of much more value when it's negative. Useful pain provocation test, it might help tell you it's not the shoulder if it's negative, but it's not that specific in terms of identifying any specific shoulder pathology. Good old-fashioned range of motion resisted tests first, a few select orthopedic tests or special tests with known specificity or sensitivity second, and then the rest of them sort of come in as my third layer of testing according to whether you know, how much more I need to look. As we start to wrap up here, I would like to touch briefly on the traumatic tears and when when to refer on. When you do your clinical test, you've given us a beautiful framework of how to think about diagnosing shoulder pain and what's going on when, when someone presents with subacromial pain. So let's focus on the particular patient group who have the traumatic history and what you suspect is a, is a traumatic tear. How do you make the decision about referring on for surgery versus starting with rehabilitation to see where that can take you and the patient? This is something where I think you you have to really have a good relationship with your local surgeons. So I would recommend that you check your local settings for what your surgeons want to see. Certainly where I work, if we're concerned about trauma, a traumatic rotator cuff tear, 
in New Zealand, we do have access to imaging. So physiotherapists in private practice can refer for imaging. So we we have X-ray and ultrasound readily available. So we would refer for imaging. The tears that we would refer early would be any large medium or large rotator cuff tear or multi-tendon tear. So maybe easier almost just to talk about the ones that may, we may treat for a period of time and then we would refer everything else. So we say here anything, even if it's a traumatic tear, if it's less than one centimeter supraspinatus tear in the anterior to posterior dimension, then there is a case for a trial or a short-term trial of physiotherapy to see if things improve. But they have a very low threshold after about four to six weeks of treatment. And if they're not progressing adequately to refer them on for orthopedic review, which doesn't always mean they will have surgery, but it means that they have a traumatic tear which is not improving, and that's an indication for referral in our setting. Certainly any larger tears than that one centimeter anterior to posterior through supraspinatus, any multi-tendon tears, and the ones particularly that really do need early surgical repair are the complete subscapularis tears. So if someone's had trauma, imaging evidence and confirmed subscapularis complete tear, those do need early referral. They do infiltrate fairly quickly with fatty tissue, makes them more difficult to repair. So they will generally try and prioritize those for early surgical repair. For a surgery, really, they're looking for the ones that have the best healing potential. So the sooner they're referred, the smaller the tear, the less it's likely to progress, the better off they will be in terms of outcomes. So small ones, there's a case where we work for a trial of physiotherapy four to six weeks, but refer on if not improving, but anything larger or multi-tendon and certainly those complete subscapularis tears do need to be referred early. Angela, it's been such a privilege to have your clinical brain on the podcast for today. Thanks so much for sharing your practical framework and your practical tips for working through diagnosing subacromial pain in the clinic. An absolute pleasure. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.